This episode of the Casting Shadows podcast is part of a series. It's part six of an ongoing series, which, at the time of recording, doesn't have a specific ending point. Its topic is Alien, the role-playing game from Free League, and specifically Alien in terms of running the game from the perspective of preparation for improvisation, recognizing the specific needs of horror games and the specific shortcomings of running horror games in an online environment. This particular episode, part six of the series, is called Introducing the Alien. Since our first Saturday session of Alien, the role-playing game, back in September, this past weekend and the one ahead are the first break we've taken from it. We've taken that break not by lack of interest, but in respect for other obligations, as important as the iron bond we have forged in our commitment to gaming as the sun rises on the player's side of the world and sets on mine. What could be so important, you ask? Well, things like turkey and pumpkin pie for the Americans in the group, which is everybody except me. As a Canadian, my Thanksgiving was in October. Anyway, during those months of play, since September, I've wanted to sit down and prepare a podcast or blog post or both about the ongoing experience, but each time felt pressed for time. There's been a lot going on around here, but not so today, where I would normally be editing the actual play video of our play. We didn't play last Saturday, and so I have a breather to do this today, now, instead, and then go do something completely relaxing. (laughs) Can you breathe deeply enough to scream in that atmosphere? As with my few previous experiments with video conference horror games, I note that before, during, and after each session, that the sense of horror seems very distant and purely conceptual. It's a distant awareness that, for the characters, this would be horrifying. I had hoped for more. But there are specific factors which interfere. And to be clear, this does not make the sessions less fun. At all. But, you know, it might if the group were unwilling to communicate about what their experience is like and what we want from it and what we are coming to want from it. And it also might be less fun if, even with that communication, some or all in the group were unwilling to redefine what the goal of play can and will be in light of the play we've had. Now, in our case, with our military action theme of colonial marines, and with the balance of people and personalities, with an active interest 
in an icy experience of horror. We've come to a new stance looking for an icy experience of tension and a sense of fatalism. Not actual fatalism, but a sense of fatalism. We've stepped away from hope and hopefulness and toward characters who are displaying a mix of desperation and self-sacrifice as a form of meaning in a life where the gap between rich and poor must be measured in light years. This is just as intense as an atmosphere of horror would be, but moves and breathes with a different cadence. What I as the GM have been pleased to note is how lean and unobtrusive the system can be even when directly invoked in play. And that is an excellent sign for using the game to really go for horror in a context and among a set of players that are all seeking that experience. As predicted, the barrier of the video screen is an awful lot to overcome, and in our case, the early start, the preference for other genres, and the short playtimes contribute to the fragility of such an atmosphere as well. Now, one response to this which I've had is to approach the session from two directions, the in-play experience and the later viewing experience. The first is to focus firmly on the moment while in play and to do my best to facilitate moments of IC-AC play or in-character, as-character play when those moments arise, despite the conditions which are working against it. Now, this isn't exactly what it sounds like because this is as much being willing to step away from it when it isn't happening as it is in stepping toward it when it is. And a big part of that is recognizing that there are varying sensitivities to the intensity of emotion within the group, and that an emotional scene, whatever type of emotion it might be, one of friendship or one of the horrors of war, you know, the violent action, the results of violent action, that sort of thing, that the reaction to such an emotional scene will cause some of us to shift toward roleplay, to enhance that feeling, and cause others to shift to quiet introspection, to explore that feeling, or others to a tension-breaking joke, to relieve that feeling. Learning to see all of those responses as signs that the game is having an effect on the players is important, because it's possible to create failure out of success by looking at it in the wrong way or only looking at it from your point of view. The second is to augment the spoken word of play with a variety of tools which are available to me once the video is in editing. This adds and intensifies the context and atmosphere reached for in play. It can bring out the visuals of the Alien franchise, as well as make the suspicions and the disheartening knowledge of the characters stand out in stark relief against the challenges they're facing. The corruption, the ambition, the cruel cheapness of life can be put on display in a response to and in support of the action taking place in the session. And 
as a fringe benefit. Rules and GM notes can also be included on screen for people who want to you know, use it to learn the game or remember how the game works or just to explore it to see if it's something that they might like to play. Did you tether yourself to the hull? This group has a good attitude toward character death and has been growing to like the way that violence is embraced in this version of the Year Zero system. And with each step toward greater familiarity with it that they take. Given how straightforward and condensed the system is, that progress in facility has been visible in each session, to the point where some mastery of concept and grasp of nuance is evident in the way the players interact with and as their characters. So far, there's been one brutal fatality and several close calls. At this point in the campaign, we're in the middle of our fourth mission, with the plan still to go for about a dozen or whatever number makes sense as things play out, whether that be more or less. Each player has backup characters ready, and those characters have been fading in and out of sessions in a limited fashion to help give a sense of continuity and to help emphasize any sense of loss when death occurs. The characters are starting to benefit from earned and spent experience and elements of their backgrounds as Marines and as people in the alien universe have been coming increasingly into focus as fundamental building blocks of how to interpret things in play. And this is taking place both in what we say in play around the, our virtual table and on screen in annotations. So far, we've struggled against harsh environments. We've struggled against devious traps, against the merciless weapons of the setting, against trained and untrained soldiers, and against ferocious beasts. What we have not yet encountered is the ferocious creature which lends its identity to the title of the game. In space, everyone wonders when the aliens will show up. As was discussed earlier in the series, the characters have been able to make an ally of Corporal Dwayne Hicks, and so were able to learn what to expect from Species XX121, as well as to be informed by his and Ellen Ripley's suspicions and certain knowledge about the goals Wayland yutani has for that species. In Mission 1, the characters were sent as the rescue team mentioned in Aliens. They arrived 19 days after the events of the film. As you remember, Hicks says it would be a minimum of 17 days. And they found a damaged pirate vessel and a seemingly deserted Sulaco orbiting each other and on a collision course toward an orbit control station for Kalpamos, the world around which Akron, formerly known as LV-426, spins with deadly anticipation of visitors. In their handling of that situation, they discovered signs of some sort of bug, but had no direct contact with it. Hicks put their experience into context when they thawed him out of hypersleep. In Mission 2, the characters were sent to help put down an insurrection on a formerly independent frontier world which had recently been annexed by the United Americas and ceded to the full administrative control of Whalen yutani despite the wishes of the colonists and the corporations already there. During that mission, they lost their first Marine. They saw another 
narrowly avoid the same fate, and they witness the savage brutality of the mercenaries hired to fight for the colonists. They also witnessed firsthand the effect of an illegal Weyland-Yutani program to weaponize alien creatures for combat deployment. In Mission 3, the characters were sent on the trail of that mercenary commander they rousted from the colony. Despite sabotage to their vessel, the Montebello, an assault on one of their assigned pilots, and the disappearance of several members of the unit. The machinations in higher pay grades were becoming more obvious, and lines of allegiance were being drawn. Which one to stand behind was becoming clearer as well. The Marines tracked the Merc back to LV-426, and they knew exactly what he was up to, obtaining species XX-121 for sale for sums that would dwarf the economies of the frontier worlds they risk their lives to protect. In the fighting, the Merc vessel was forced into uncontrolled atmospheric insertion, and the Marines had to abandon the wreck before it burned up. They found themselves on the surface of LV-426, the surface of Acheron, with few supplies and the certain knowledge that the Merc was on the surface somewhere with them, still intent on his goal. Mission 4, now in progress, had the Marines organize themselves to deal with their three priorities. 1. Survive. 2. Capture the Merc as ordered. And 3. Destroy species XX121. In so doing, they uncovered physical evidence of Weyland-Yutani's involvement in the endangerment of commercial shipping, as well as their fear of the legal repercussions should news of their intentions for species XX121 become known. As the first half of the mission came to a close, the Marines found themselves facing a devil's bargain they have no intention of accepting. Those paying attention will note that in seven sessions of play, none of the titular aliens have been harmed in the production of this role-playing experience. One fierce and homicidal lionworm met a nasty end, however. Where are they, you might ask? Well, they're now within reach of the characters, and the characters know it. The Marines know what the xenomorphs are. They are sure they know where the xenomorphs are. And they are quite sure they know the awful things that the xenomorphs can do to them. What they are unsure of is what they can do to the xenomorphs in return. And the players have two weeks to think about it. Now that is a good recipe for anticipation and tension. And in the context of our play, those are great stand-ins for dread. The characters have it in their hands to seek out and encounter this fearsome species and learn intimately if what Hicks told them was true. And they're being pressured to collect specimens in return for rescue from what may very well be the last world they ever walk on. They have no reason to expect they can survive on LV-426 indefinitely, with or without the xenomorphs, and with or without a madman in orbit above them with nukes. Things are about as bleak as they can get. Yet, 
morale is high. That is also a good recipe for anticipation and tension. The memories of player emotional reaction in play, combined with their imagination of the events of play and their sharing of their perspectives on those events, coupled with the final rendition of the recording, might give us a glimpse of horror. But it doesn't have to, and even if it doesn't, the ride has been excellent and engaging so far. In our next installment of the series, we'll take a look at the specific way that the system has been implemented and how that works so well, not only with horror, but with the types of activities that characters in Alien the role-playing game will find themselves mixed up in. This goes for the actual generation of jobs or missions, right down to the moment where dice clatter on the table to let you know if your character is panicking. I hope you'll come back and listen to that. And I also hope that you'll take the time to interact with us through the podcast or through the other means available for contacting us provided in the show notes. Until then, take care. <laughs>